Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from Berkeley, California. With me is Seth Yelson, Associate Professor of Philosophy and member of the group in Logic and Methodology of Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He is here to discuss the question sensitivity of belief. Seth Yelson, welcome. Hey, Matt. It's great to be here. So a lot of modern theories of the content of a person's beliefs, that is to say, like what information it is that they believe or something like that departs from this notion of a possible world and uh, sometimes this is referred to as possible world semantics what exactly is a possible world it sounds a little bit like science fiction or something is it, it what are these possible worlds so philosophers are interested in the nature of possibility and the idea of a possible world is one kind of conceptual tool for approaching that issue so what do I mean when I say philosophers are interested in possibility? Well, you know, if I flip a coin and it comes up heads, it seems kind of natural and intuitive and true to say that it might not have come up heads, it might have come up tails. So one way to make that, to regiment that talk, to start to theorize about it, is to put that thought like this. There's a possible world where the coin didn't come up heads. There's a possible world where it came up tails. So the idea of a possible world is part of a particular kind of approach to modeling this kind of discourse in ordinary language that's called modal discourse, so words like possibly, necessarily, or it might have been that, or it must have been that. All these words are used to describe what's possible or necessary, and possible world semantics is a, an approach that philosophers can use to theorize a bit more precisely about that language. But there's further debate about what exactly possible worlds are, you know, even in the context of possible world semantics. So um, if you're the kind of philosopher that likes to talk about possible worlds, that doesn't yet mean that you sign up for a particular kind of conception of what possible worlds are. Sometimes people get in mind a particular idea of possible worlds, which I view as totally optional. This is a view that's most associated with David Lewis, the idea is that a possible world is literally another place. So in reality, in addition to Paris and Mars, there's this other possible world where the coin came up differently than it actually did. And there's a real place in reality um, where that happened. And as for, indeed, for every possibility, there's going to be a place in reality where that possibility is actually realized. So there are these concrete locations in reality that correspond to possible worlds. That's just one view of the nature or metaphysics of possible worlds. It doesn't happen to be the view of them that I take. But in a way, I think there's a lot of fruitful theorizing you can do in abstraction from a particular metaphysics of possible worlds. We all think that things might have been different 
than they actually are, or at least most of us think that. Um, and if you're okay with that thought, then you should be okay, at least for a little while, theorizing with possible worlds, because they help to kind of clarify the structure of this language. And they help to frame these metaphysical questions about, well, what is possibility exactly? Okay, good, right. So it's we're not necessarily saying that you know, these are actual worlds that we can like rip through the space-time continuum and travel to or something. <laughs> All we're saying is that, look, we say things like, it didn't rain today, but it might very well have rained. And this idea that there is a possible world in which it rained today, not the actual world, but some other world, that's just a way of, as you say, regimenting that talk so that we can come up with a theory about what we're saying when we say those things. Yeah, that's exactly right. So a lot of people, famously the philosopher Yako Hintika, have thought that this notion of a possible world can be used to explain what a belief is. How does that go? Well, it's really a very intuitive idea, I think. It starts from a pretty humble place, which is just this simple intuition that there's a way the world is according to you. Sometimes your beliefs are right, and then the way that you take the world to be is the way it in fact is. Sometimes you have false beliefs. If you have false beliefs, then the way that you take the world to be is different than the world in fact is. You know, if you think the coin came up tails, but in fact it came up heads, then the world according to you is such that the coin came up tails, but in fact that's not how the world is. So how can you um, use the idea of a possible world to get a little bit of a sharper picture of this? Well, you could say something like this. You're in a state of belief your state of belief, the content of it is representable as a way the world is. You can think of a way the world is as a possibility itself. So let me come at it with an example. So if you believe that the coin came up tails, then one way to think about this is that you're in a belief state which is such that it only it leaves open certain possible worlds and excludes others. Um, which possible worlds does it leave open? Well, out of the worlds it leaves open, it's going to leave open only worlds where the coin came up tails. After all, the world according to you is such that the coin came up tails. So if we're trying to model your state of belief, we could start with the idea that, well, there's a way the world is according to your state of belief. And this way that you take the world to the B rules out the idea that the coin came up in some way other than tails. The world according to you is such that the coin did come up tails. And so every possible world compatible with your beliefs is one where the coin came up tails. So the idea is to basically think of a state of belief as determining a set of possible worlds. And you're thinking of this set as capturing everything that is in common with the way you take the world to be. So of course, there's no one possible world that corresponds to your state of belief. That would mean that you were completely opinionated about every matter of fact. Built into the idea of a possible world is the idea that they're maximally specific. So for any claim, any proposition, a possible world will render that claim true or false. If you lack an opinion about some claim, maybe you're not sure how the weather is in Topeka, then you're in a state of belief that will leave open a whole range of possibilities, you know, all the different possibilities for what the weather could be like over in Topeka. So you wouldn't want to, for any kind of normal agent, represent 
their state of belief with just a single possible world. You'd want a set of possible worlds, and the set of possibilities is reflecting a certain kind of lack of opinion. As you become more opinionated, you gradually eliminate possibilities. That's how we're modeling belief. Okay, very nice. So maybe just to keep things simple, imagine I just have one belief, and my only belief is that the coin landed tails. Now, we said it's a false belief, but that doesn't really matter so much for present purposes. So I have one belief. My belief is that the coin landed tails. And that also means that if we model my belief state in this way, a ton of possible worlds are going to be in there, maybe even infinitely many, because it's going to be the world in which the coin came up tails and it's sunny in Topeka and the world in which the coin came up tails and it's raining in Topeka and the world in which the coin came up tails and it's snowing in Topeka and the world in which it, the coin came up tails, it's sunny in Topeka and Hillary Clinton won the election, et cetera, et cetera. We can just do this forever. There are going to be infinitely many worlds in this belief state, according to this picture. And indeed, as you just mentioned, there's something like an inverse proportion between how much information there is in my belief and how many worlds there are. Taking away worlds means increasing the amount of information, increasing the amount that I'm opinionated about, and adding more worlds in means making me less opinionated. It means making me more agnostic. It means believing less. That's right. Yeah, so the number of possibilities or the range of possibilities that your belief state leaves open reflects how opinionated you are. So we could kind of describe the two extremes. So on the one hand, if you were in a complete state of um, agnosticism about what the world was like, you'd leave open every possibility. It would mean that you basically believed nothing that was not trivial. So you wouldn't exclude any possibilities. So your belief state would just be equivalent to the whole set of possibilities. In the, in the complete other direction, uh, you could be maximally opinionated. In that case, you would eliminate every single possibility except one, the one possibility which reflects the totally specific way the world is according to you. But we all, you know, ordinary folk fall somewhere in between those two extremes. And it's right that as you become more opinionated, you eliminate more and more possibilities. So the set of possible worlds compatible with what you believe shrinks and gets smaller and smaller. That's the picture. So possible worlds are also sometimes talked about as points in logical space. And indeed, we kind of just made reference to that just now when we said that somebody who has no opinions on anything, well, you know, their belief state would just be all the possible worlds. And maybe in this way of talking, it would be the entirety of logical space. What does logical space mean exactly? So it's not like the up, down, left, right type space that we are used to talking about in, in everyday context. It's not like physical space, but like, what is this logical space? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's funny, their possible world, logical space, they seem like very spatial, concrete ideas. And so that can lead to some confusion, but that's also the metaphorical potential there is also very helpful. So here's kind of the basic picture behind the idea of logical space. Think of the space as consisting of the set of possible worlds. And we said earlier that Claims or propositions are the kinds of things that are true or false relative to possible worlds. If we have that kind of idea, we could imagine logical space as something, you know, you can kind of 
imagine it metaphorically as almost like a two-dimensional rectangle. And then the points in the rectangle are the possible worlds. And when you consider uh, some proposition like the coin came up tails or it's raining in Topeka, you could think of these as determining regions of this space, the regions where the relevant claims are true. So if you have all of logical space as kind of rectangles, then some subregion of that space will correspond to the region, all the different possibilities where the coin came up tails. This is a really nice picture because philosophers care a lot about modeling logical concepts like entailment and consistency, inconsistency. And the idea of logical space lets us leverage to some extent our spatial intuitions in theorizing about these notions. So, for example, consider the proposition that I have a black puppy. That's only going to be true at some possible worlds. It'll be false relative to others. So we can consider the region of logical space where that's true. That region is going to be a subregion of the region of logical space where I own a puppy. So if you consider the region of logical space that corresponds to I own a puppy, that's going to be bigger than the region where I own a black puppy. The black puppy region is going to be some subregion of that region corresponding to the place where I own a puppy. So the general claim is that if a proposition A entails a proposition B, then the proposition A is contained in the proposition B. So you can kind of picture it that way. If two, and similarly, if two propositions are consistent with each other, if A is consistent with B, then that means that they have some region of overlap in logical space. This is corresponding exactly to Venn diagrammatic reasoning, these sort of um, pictures of overlapping circles you see in your BuzzFeed uh, uh, <laughs> Facebook feed. Great. And this seems really intuitive, actually, because so we have the statement, I own a black puppy, and that entails the statement, I own a puppy. Why? Because it's impossible for me to own a black puppy and not also own a puppy. If I own a black puppy, then I just have to own a puppy. Just it doesn't even make any sense to say I own a black puppy, but somehow I don't own a puppy. Right. And we're capturing that by saying all the worlds in which I own a black puppy are also worlds in which I own a puppy. Now, there might be some other worlds in which I own a puppy that's not black, and those are going to be part of the bigger region in this you know, sort of diagram. So we're using this intuition that these points in logical space are possible worlds to model the fact that it's impossible for statement A to be true and be false. And then it's a similar intuition about modeling the idea of logical consistency. There's nothing inconsistent about saying it's raining in Berkeley and it's not raining in Topeka. Why? Because those are two different places, and they, it's independent what the weather is in one versus in the other. And the way we capture that in this kind of framework is by saying that the regions of logical space corresponding to each of these statements overlap. There are some worlds in which it's both not raining in Topeka and raining in Berkeley. And the fact that there's overlap and the fact that these points of overlap are possible worlds is just a way of saying, yeah, it's possible for it to be raining in Berkeley and not raining in Topeka. Right. Yes. And I think the utility of this picture, this picture of logical space and this kind of Venn diagrammatic thinking is a lot of what motivates the idea of a possible world and explains a lot of why philosophers are 
interested in this kind of notion. It might seem like a science fiction notion at first, but actually it just flows very naturally from ordinary reflection on a Venn diagram. Okay, so I think you've convinced me that this is a potentially helpful way to model a person's belief. A person's beliefs are just all the situations that person might be in that are compatible with what they believe. But almost as soon as this account of what a belief was was proposed, people came up with a really big problem for it. What's that problem? Okay, right. So we've just explained what the picture of belief is according to the possible world's picture. It's just basically there's a way the world is according to you. And we can represent that with the set of possible worlds which are that way. And we've reviewed what entailment is on this picture of logical space and how we're thinking about it. So there's a problem that arises when you put these two things together. And this problem is often described, called the problem of logical omniscience. So basically the worry is that if an individual believes a proposition P and P entails some other proposition Q, then it's going to fall out according to this model that that individual believes Q as well. So in other words, you end up believing all of the logical consequences of the propositions that you believe. So it seems like this model of belief makes us all out to be logically omniscient. We don't make any kind of mistakes of a logical character. If something follows from something you believe, you automatically count as believing it. So here's an example that Braden, Mitchell, and Jackson uh, give when they're talking about this problem. Consider some individual Jones. Jones might believe that Mary lives in New York, that Fred lives in Boston, and that Boston is north of New York. Maybe Jones believes those three things. But Jones still might fail to put all that together and form the belief that Mary will have to travel north to visit Fred, right? It seems possible to imagine Jones could believe those first three things without believing that fourth thing. But, of course, if you're logically omniscient, if you have this feature built into our model of belief, it can be hard to see what is the set of possible worlds that Jones's belief state leaves open, which could possibly vindicate that. That is, which where Jones really counts as believing those first three things, but not the fourth thing. Yeah, okay, so it seems like the problem with that case is that Sure, if I were to sit down with a pen and paper and think carefully about those three things and work everything out, duh, I would be able to figure out that Mary has to travel north to visit Fred. But, you know, if I'm just like having a busy day, I don't really spend too much time thinking about it. I, you know, in some sense know the first three things, but I just didn't put everything together due to time constraints or something. I'm not always going to perfectly put together everything, all the information I know and figure out all of its consequences. You just given the limitations of life, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, another example in this vein is uh, I remember a friend once who um, didn't have telephone service. So she picked up the phone to call the telephone company to tell them, you know, I need service. So she clearly somehow forgot that she didn't have service. She picked up the phone. That's the kind of thing, actually, that I think we've all done sometime or another (laughs) where you accidentally kind of act in a way that's incompatible with something you believe. But, of course, this is just very hard to understand from the point of view of the model of belief I've described, where 
you know, it's hard to find the way the world is according to you if your belief state is describable in that kind of way. Yeah, so we, I mean, we do our best. We try to have consistent beliefs as best we can, but in practice, sometimes we fail and we accidentally have inconsistent beliefs. And that's what there's no way to represent in this way. Right. That's a challenge for the model. Another kind of example in a different vein is given by Stolnarker. In a book of his, he mentions William III of England. So William III of England believed that England could avoid war with France. That was true. He did believe that. Did he believe that England could avoid nuclear war with France? Well, that would follow from his belief that England could avoid war with France. If you can avoid war with France, you can avoid nuclear war with France. But it seems really weird, maybe even just false, to say William III believed that England could avoid nuclear war with France. But again, this is something that's not easy or straightforward at all to model in this possible world's picture. Again, we have this closure under entailment property, which means that William III believes that England could avoid war with France. If he believes that, then he also believes every consequence of that belief. And it looks like it's going to be a consequence of that, that England can avoid nuclear war with France. So we end up with that kind of surprising consequence. And then there's a puzzle about how to come up with, um, how to adjust the model to avoid this result. So what do you think is the best way to deal with this problem of logical omniscience? So I think a good way to start is... uh, with some ideas that were developed by Stonelocker and also David Lewis. So they both are famous for developing this possible world's picture of belief. Um, but they also recognized this problem of logical omniscience and pioneered one kind of approach to help mitigate its problematic consequences. So the idea they introduced goes under the heading fragmentation or compartmentalization. And their proposal was well, maybe there isn't just one way the world is according to you. Maybe there are a few different and potentially incompatible ways the world is according to you. Uh, Maybe your belief state isn't representable as just one set of possibilities, but instead can be represented as a few different sets of possibilities, each one kind of reflecting a belief state that's operative in certain contexts but not others. So it's kind of like, You know, one metaphor I like is this metaphor of um, belief as the map by which we steer. That's an idea about belief that goes back to Frank Ramsey. That's a nice way of thinking about belief. It's kind of got this representational element, so it's map-like, and it's also got this connection to action. It's the thing by which we steer. So the possible world's picture you could think of as as a way of modeling or developing that metaphor about belief. And this idea of fragmentation or compartmentalization, I like to think of it as elaborating on this metaphor of belief as a map. So it's kind of like saying a belief state is almost like an atlas. It's a bunch of maps. And at any given time, you're only, you're not steering by the whole atlas. You're steering by some particular page in the atlas. You're steering by some particular conception of how things are, some specific way the world is according to you in that situation. But in different situations, you turn to different pages, you're guided by different maps. And maybe sometimes your atlas doesn't always come together to form one coherent picture of the world. Maybe some parts of your atlas are inconsistent with other parts of your atlas. 
So that's compatible with the possible world's picture in a limited sense. I mean, you're still always steering by one consistent way the world is, but maybe across contexts in different situations, you're steering by different pictures and maybe those pictures can sometimes come in conflict and are incompatible. So that kind of approach can handle, for example, the um, puzzle about calling the phone company when you don't have phone service, you're calling the phone company trying to get service. There isn't just one way the world is according to you. There's a potentially several different ways the world things might be according to you and that are operative in different cases. And there's a sense in which two different maps from your atlas are in conflict in that kind of case. Or the case from Brad Mitchell and Jackson, where we said Jones might believe that Mary lives in New York, that Fred lives in Boston, that Boston is north of New York, and still fail to put all that together and believe that Mary has to travel north to visit Fred. Well, how can that be on the possible world's picture? Well, if we have fragmentation or compartmentalization, we can say Jones doesn't believe all of those things relative to just one compartment. Those are kind of represented on a few of his maps, but then some of them are represented on others, and there's no one kind of map that brings all that information together in one place. And so that's why he might fail to draw the consequence of his beliefs. Yeah, so maybe it's like, oh, if I go to bake a cake, well, I take a, my cooking map out of the atlas, and that's like all my beliefs that are relevant to cooking, which is just to say that I'm not thinking necessarily closely, carefully, while I'm making my cake about like the vagaries of international diplomacy or something. Whereas maybe I finish baking my cake and then I go and like read the newspaper. And then when I read the newspaper, I shelve my cooking map and I take out my whatever um, politics map. And that's all my beliefs relevant to international diplomacy because that's what's in the forefront of my mind when I'm reading the news. And so in different situations, it's like different sort of clusters of beliefs are more relevant to the situation we're in. And we're paying attention to those rather than others. Right. Something like that seems to be the idea Stolnok and Lewis had, yes. So we deal with this problem of logical omniscience by saying, oh, it's no longer the case that you're committed to all the consequences of all your beliefs. It's just that within each map, when I'm in the cooking map, when I'm in the politics map, when I'm in you know, within one, each map, maybe I'm committed to the consequences of just those beliefs, the ones that I'm attending to right now, but I'm not committed to the consequences of like all my beliefs. Right. So the fragmentation picture still has a decent amount of logical omniscience built into it. That is, relative to any given map, you still count as believing everything that logically follows from the information given by that map. But it might be that the beliefs that you have are located across different maps in your atlas. And so in that way, you can avoid some of the problematic consequences of logical omniscience. Um, so you're strictly making the model richer instead of just a single set of possibilities that represents your state of belief. You now have a whole bunch of compartments, but you still have a little bit of a problem about logical omniscience. I mean, this comes out. So the problem we had earlier about William III of England, though, hasn't yet gone away. So if William III of England believed that England could avoid war with France, it still seems to be true, you know, relative to any map, as it were, where that's the case, it's going to be true according to that map, according to that fragment of your belief state, that England could avoid nuclear war with France. 
So you still seem to end up with the surprising consequence that William III believed that England could avoid nuclear war with France. So we still have some trouble uh, to deal with for the possible world's picture. Another kind of example is uh, this one. So also from Stolnogger, if you imagine an absent-minded detective, suppose the detective thinks that the butler did it, but totally overlooks the possibility that it was the chauffeur. But were he to consider that possibility, it might shake up his view. So he just overlooked a possibility. Question, does the detective believe that the chauffeur did not do it? It seems like you want to say no. The detective overlooked this possibility, so it's kind of... Even though the world, according to the detective, the butler did it, and therefore the chauffeur didn't, seems kind of fishy to say that the butler actually believes the chauffeur didn't do it. Because after all, maybe if you brought that up to the detective, the detective would say, oh yeah, oh my gosh, I haven't even considered that. So we need to be able to explain what's going on there. Why is it a little weird to say that the detective believes the chauffeur didn't do it when the detective just kind of overlooked the possibility? So those are two problems we still have for the possible world's picture, even when we take the step and accept the idea of fragmentation. Oh, man. I I thought we were done, but apparently uh, solving the problem of logical omniscience isn't enough. So... Is there another model of belief that maybe can incorporate some of the insights of this um, fragmentation picture, but explain how it's possible for William III to believe that England won't go to war with France without also having to believe that England won't go to nuclear war with France? Yeah, well, we should like to have a theory of belief that can somehow do that. I've been exploring the idea, a certain way of enriching the fragmentation picture. So the thought is... Think of belief like this. Think of belief basically as something like a function from questions to answers. In other words, a belief state is the kind of thing that answers a bunch of questions. You can think of a question in the possible world setting as a way of chopping up logical space. A common way of thinking about questions is, uh, is in terms of what could possibly answer them. So this is kind of sometimes a surprising idea to people. But the idea is that you can model a question by the set of its possible answers. You know, for instance, is it raining? So that question has two possible answers, yes and no. And you could think of those two answers as each corresponding to mutually exclusive regions of logical space. You can think of the question, is it raining, as chopping up logical space in that way, dividing logical space into the different possibilities that correspond to the answer to the question. And so one idea we might consider is the thought that belief is a state which takes questions, takes these different ways of cutting up logical space to answers. Maybe they're partial answers, maybe thinking of a question as kind of a selection of options for how actuality can be Maybe what a belief state does is kind of select a few of them as candidates for actuality. So we still have the idea that there are a few different ways that the world could be according to you. That's the fragmentation idea. But we're just adding that maybe we should think of these different ways the world could be according to you as situated relative to a question that's guiding your thinking and the kind of question that the stuff that you believe is an answer to. So how does this help? I mean, there's a 
a lot more I could say about how to formally model it, but just staying at an intuitive level with it all, if we have the William III example, so he said, yeah, well, what's weird about that? Why, why, why don't we want to say William III of England believed that England could avoid nuclear war with France? So the thought would be, William III wasn't in a state of belief that was sensitive to certain distinctions, the kinds of distinctions in logical space that we could make using the concept of nuclear war, right? So when you consider William III's state of belief, we want to say that his belief state is not defined on any way of cutting up logical space that's sensitive to questions of nuclear war. That's a way of kind of trying to capture the thought that he doesn't think with that concept or the d- nuclear distinctions are not live for him. They don't, it's not, he's not in a state of mind that has that kind of distinction. So propositions about nuclear war are just not the kinds of propositions that could constitute answers to questions that William III has any views about. So that's the reason I'm proposing it's weird to say that William III thought England could avoid nuclear war with France. So it's, maybe it's something like he didn't just believe that England could avoid war with France. He believed it as a partial answer to the question, can England avoid a battle by land with sabers and on horseback? Or can England avoid a battle by sea with ships and, I don't know, flaming arrows? Or could England avoid this other kind of battle? In other words, the possible answers to the question he was considering when he had that belief were only looking at certain possible kinds of war that there could be. And those did not include nuclear war. Yeah, that's right. I mean, William III had basically, you know, he did have the concept of war. That's fine. Had the concept of France, England. So far, so good. He also had the concepts of specific sorts of war, as you mentioned. So the fact that he just has the concept of war, well, that seems like enough to say, yeah, William III of England believed that England could avoid war with France, just war. If you had nuclear war, though, now it seems like you're crediting William III with a way, like a kind of distinction that he just didn't possess. And so that's a really natural thing to say, but how do we connect it to our model of belief? The suggestion is... Well, if you think of belief as question-sensitive, maybe the thought is just William III just didn't think in terms of questions where nuclear war could be an answer to the question. In other words, propositions about nuclear war, those correspond to regions of logical space, but these are regions that William III just isn't sensitive to, like in his thinking, and so that's the proposal. And it seems like maybe questions are playing something like the role in the previous metaphor we had. We have an atlas of maps, and when I'm doing the one kind of thing, I take out the one map, and that's guiding my my behavior when I'm doing the one kind of thing, like, I don't know, cooking. And then I take out the other map when I'm doing another kind of thing. Here, maybe it's like, well, I'm doing this one kind of activity, now I'm answering this question. And when I'm engaged in this other kind of activity, then I'm answering this other question. So our sets of beliefs are sort of like compartmentalized in this way, depending on what we're doing. Right. So a good question for the fragmentation view is, well, what explains how things are compartmentalized the way that they are? Why is it that you act as if the world is like this in this setting and you act in some other way as if the world is like that? You know, Why do you turn the pages of your atlas 
in the way that you do, well, what makes the atlas the way it is in the first place? How is it organized? So the kind of idea that this approach would suggest is exactly the kind of thing you just described, namely, well, maybe it's organized by subject matter. Um, the different maps correspond to the different subject matters you have beliefs about. And so you turn to the page that's appropriate to the subject matter that matters for your action in the situation at hand. That would be the thought. Is this picture of beliefs as compartmentalized into different questions useful for understanding other problems in philosophy or maybe even in other areas? So one place I'm hoping to use some of these ideas is in thinking about what ideology is. That's something philosophers have been really interested in lately. What is ideology? What is it to embrace an ideology, whether it's a political ideology or otherwise? And I'm interested in the idea that maybe that just is thinking relative to certain kinds of questions or being the kind of individual that treats certain distinctions as important in a wide variety of contexts, maybe the kinds of contexts that they shouldn't be, especially when we're talking about flawed ideologies. So, for instance, if we ask, well, what is it exactly to embrace a sexist ideology? What does that amount to exactly? Is that just believing certain things false claims about women or something like that? It could be, but maybe there's a different dimension to embracing a flawed sexist ideology. Maybe it's thinking relative to the wrong distinctions in the wrong contexts. Um, maybe in just a really simplistic example, if you're thinking about who's most qualified for a position, that, in, at least in many cases, is going to seem like it shouldn't actually matter what the sex or gender of the individual in question is. But perhaps if you embrace a flawed sexist ideology, you have a tendency to treat that distinction as important, as a relevant feature of the answers to that question. So the general idea is to think of embracing an ideology as partly a matter of what distinctions you, tr you regard as most real and most important and most relevant in lots of different contexts. Seth Yeltsin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.